0: So much the life of a church, and for those of you that have been around for a long time here at Bel Air, you know that we've had many transitions over the years, and as a church family, we've actually reached another one of those moments as a family that I would use the word bittersweet. Enoch, would you come up here for a moment? Well, Enoch, as I've gotten to know him over the last month, I have fallen in love with this man. How many of you would say the same? Yeah? Yes. (laughs) That was quick, after only a month, I already fell in love with you.
1: Must be my accent. Yes.
0: (laughs) And so, as you can imagine, it was was a surprise for me uh, when you called me in your office two weeks ago, two Sundays ago, and you shared with me some news, and you shared with me after a lot of prayer and thought and consideration uh, that you had desired to step down from your role as pastor of Outreach. And immediately I begged you not to. And we talked, we, there was tears um, in your office and this, this has been shared with um, the pastors, with our, with our session, our elders, um, your staff, our staff. There's been a lot of moments along the way where, I'll just speak for myself, I've been selfish and I've wanted to hold you close and to keep you here. And as I've heard you share what God is stern in your heart, um, I'm, I'm allowing God to give you space. And so I want to… I not that I need to allow God to give you space. He's God, right? <laughs> I guess I'm allowing myself to <laughs> give you space. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> and so I, I'd love for you to share with this church family what you share with me if you Thank don't you mind. So. That'd be Thank great.
1: You. I love you too. <laughs> You know, God called me into ministry when I was about 15 years ago, 15 years old, which means more than 30 years ago. And uh, I grew up in Brazil, and uh, that first call was to call and to, be, to serve among the poor, the marginalized, the dis- disenfranchised in the world. And uh, when I was 19 years old, my denomination in Brazil sent me to plant new churches in the northern part of Brazil. And, uh, and the place there was very poor. To get there was two and a half days on a horseback to get to that region, and I went there. I tell you, some geographic areas of my body was hurting when I got there, but I did anyway. <laughs> we plan to establish the presence of the kingdom of God in that region, and so many years later, God is taking me from place to place to continue to serve, to serve Him. You know, uh, I came to this church uh, eight years ago, it has been 30 years serving the global church in different capacities, in different parts of the world. And on your behalf in these eight years, I have had the great privilege to serve you, to represent this church in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America, in Europe, in different places. Teaching uh, pastors and work with those who are suffering and walk alongside of those who have no voice, their voiceless or power in the world. And in your behalf I had the privilege of being there with them in those times of their struggles. But in the last two years, God started stirring something in my heart. It was the reflection about my first call, a call to work with the marginalized and the poor more directly. And the first I thought I was crazy, which is probably true, but I I started reflecting this because I enjoy so much being here with you and serving here with you. And because we are in the process of transition of Bel Air, I could not allow myself to entertain that idea for so long, so I decided to put it aside a little bit. When I found out that Drew had been chosen to be the senior pastor of Bel Air, because I believe, and I knew him before, I believe that Drew and you will lead this church to some of the most beautiful experiences of the work of the kingdom of God that this church has experienced in our history as Bel Air. So it allowed myself to go back to that reflection about what was my original call. So, And then in this time right now, I, I come to you to say that I would like to take some time to, to rest, uh, some time to renew my sense of calling towards the poor, and then to refocus on that what God has for me, for me next. It has no implication. Laura's job in this church She has been called to serve here, and we continue to serve with you. But this time of my life right now, I, I want God to allow that time to refocus me into my ministry. And I will tell you, as I look around this room, in different places I, self, I see faces that I have journeyed with in this year's year Bel-Air. I have baptized some of your children, to celebrate the lives of the ones that we lost, were so loved by this congregation, and being with you in times of the struggles for counsel and presence. And all those things I say, I'm thankful, I'm thankful that God brought me here. And as I look at your face, I say, guys, I love you. I love you. I love you. And I can't wait to see what God will do in this church in the next years of ministry. As today, I don't have a specific call to go or a place or a job, which is kind of uh, what? But I know with whom I'm going to. And God will go with me in this process. Thank you. Thank you. I love you. I love you, Belair. Mm -hmm. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Now, Enoch, I shared with the nine o'clock, which did the same thing, by the way, that that was just the tip of the iceberg of the emotions and the thankfulness and the thoughts and the feelings that this family has towards you. And if I can experience that for a month, I can't imagine what it's been like for those who have walked alongside you for the last eight years. So for that, we are so thankful. Thank you. And I know that right now, that those in this room are exactly where I was at about 7.35 p.m. two Sundays ago. There's questions. There's, there's emotions. There's thoughts. Uh, and perhaps one of the questions is, well, well I want to I hug Enoch. I want to I I tell him, you know... <laughs> that I'm thankful for him. I want to tell him stories. I want to let you know that we've uh, planned a day. It's, it's a day that you've uh, shared with us as the best day for you. June 22nd after the 11 o'clock service. We'll give you more details. It's going to be a great time where we can honor and celebrate and thank Enoch for his tremendous service. We'll also be available right uh, afterwards. But you were there for, what, 40 minutes afterwards? So just know that we've got another day planned. You don't have to cram it all in today. But also I imagine there's other questions like, well, wait a second, I'm going on a mission trip and you oversee this department or, you know, I've given to a, a need or a project. What's, what's going to happen? What's going to happen in the outreach department? And I want to let you know that first, there's a phenomenal team around Enoch uh, of both staff and lay leadership. Also that we've, from this moment they shared with me, began praying through and thinking through how we can in the short term come up with some solutions to some of these short-term Needs And I want you to know that we have the, the smartest minds here at Bel Air solving those issues. So uh, we're confident that nothing's going to get dropped Amen. in this transition. Uh, you won't let that. You haven't let that. And, and so in your, even in your transition out, I know that we're not going to have that. So I imagine there's a lot more questions. One of the questions was, what did I do, Enoch? A month in, what did I do? And, and you assured me that uh, there's nothing. Absolutely. And, um, but the selfish part of me wants you to stay. And so I'm going to say that publicly, but at the same time, this image that I've shared with you is, I see you letting go of this role, and normally it's easier to celebrate if you're grabbing on to a new role at the same time. You know, I left my church and I came here, it's easier to celebrate, but I see you letting go of this role, but you're lifting up empty hands of faith, asking God, what's next? And when I see you do that, it actually, it it humbles me, it inspires me. You've had so much integrity through this, and um, I think even in your transition, you are leading well. So I want to thank you for that. Can we, can we pray for this man right now in this moment? If you would, would you put your hands out if you are comfortable, just as a sign that we're praying to our one God as one voice together. God, I thank you for Enoch. I thank you so much for his service and his faithfulness, how you've used him in tremendous ways, ways that even he doesn't even know. God, I pray that you would bless him in this new season as he rests, refocuses, and, and renews uh, the areas in his life that you desire. And God, I thank you that as he lifts up those empty hands of faith, that God, you have already held on to him. God, I'm so thankful that you start good works and you finish them. And that God, you call people to follow you, and that call never changes. So as he follows you, and as Laura serves, uh, not only Um, in this church, but also uh, as Enoch's wife, I pray blessing for for that marriage, that entire family. May we be a church that loves them, and at the same time God allows you to lead them in ways uh, that are even beyond what we could ask or imagine. We thank you for Enoch. We thank you for his service, and we thank you, God, that you are the God who doesn't change. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Why don't we thank Enoch again as he... As you grab the seat. And now I'm going to preach from the book of Job. <laughs> There's just so much emotion that I have un- under the surface. You know, I come into this weekend knowing that we were going to announce this. Um, About to preach from the book of Job. Um, Yesterday, my son ran for the first time into a kitchen countertop. He's got a big gash, and and, uh, just seeing him cry and and going through all that yesterday. My my in-laws are visiting from Texas. Uh, They both woke up sick this morning. They couldn't come in. And last night, my cat ran away. I know. I know. So, a lot of emotion in the midst of. In the most more serious note, my, my family and I, we, we were in Santa Barbara uh, Friday afternoon, eight hours before the shooting in La Vista. Uh, we came back, we found out news of that, and I imagine many of you, uh, your heart and mind is spinning. Uh, even one of the young victims, a young lady, uh, graduated from the high school right down the street from me from Westlake High School. I knew her peers, didn't know her, uh, so close to home. And as we come into this room, we might Philosophically, ask the questions, God. Why do you allow pain and suffering? Or perhaps someone's coming in the room, personally asking, God, why are you allowing pain and suffering in my life at this moment? Why now? Well, I'm going to tell you that we're going to find some tremendous hope and actually an answer to that question of why, perhaps in a way that we haven't found before. And as a reminder for those that haven't been part of this series, we're we're doing a 10-week series called Emmaus, where we're starting with the same New Testament text of Scripture. And that, in many ways, is our doorway into the Old Testament, where we take a look at ten different Old Testament stories and now. Actually, they point to Jesus. So today, we're going to read through that Emmaus story, not through a translation, but a paraphrase of the Bible by Eugene Peterson. He was a retired pastor who wrote the message. So why don't you hear these words of God? I'm going to read them to you, and then after that, I'm going to pray. This is God's Word. That same day, two of them were walking to the village Emmaus about seven miles out of Jerusalem. They were deep in conversation going over all these things that had happened. In the middle of their talk and questions, Jesus came up and walked along with them, but they were not able to recognize who he was. He asked, what's this you're discussing so intently as you walk along? Then one of them, his name was Cleopas, said, are you the only one in Jerusalem who hasn't heard what's happened during the last few days? He said, what has happened? They said, the things that happened to Jesus the Nazarene was a man of God, a prophet, dynamic in work and word, blessed by both God and all the people. Then our high priests and leaders betrayed him, got him sentenced to death and crucified him. And we had our hopes up that he was the one, the one about to deliver Israel. And it is now the third day since it happened, but now some of our women have completely confused us. Early this morning they were at the tomb and couldn't find his body. They came back with the story that they had seen a vision of angels who said He was alive. Some of our friends went off to the tomb to check and found it empty, just as the women said, but they didn't see Jesus. Then He said to them, so thick-headed, so slow-hearted, why can't you simply believe all that the prophet said? Don't you see that these things had to happen, that the Messiah had to suffer and only then enter into His glory? Then He started at the beginning with the books of Moses, and went on through all the prophets, pointing out everything in the scriptures that referred to him. They came to the edge of the village where they were headed. He acted as if he was going on, but they pressed him. Stay and have supper with us. It's nearly evening. The day is done. So he went in with them. And here's what happened. He sat down at the table with them, taking the bread. He blessed and broke and gave it to them. At that moment, open-eyed, wide-eyed, they recognized Him. And then he disappeared. Back and forth they talked. Didn't we feel on fire as he conversed with us on the road as he opened up the scriptures for us? They didn't waste a minute. They were up and on their way back to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and their friends gathered together talking away. It's really happened. The Master has been raised up. Simon saw him. Then the two went over everything that happened on the road and how they recognized him when he broke the bread. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? God, as we gather in this place and as we consider how even the story of Job points to Jesus, may we find answers to the questions that we have, answers that we can't provide on our own. Jesus, lead us as the living word, as we encounter you in the written word. God, we thank you for this time. We pray it together. Amen. Well, as I said, pain and suffering is all around us. Whether you think about that question, why does pain and suffering exist, or even personally experience things, we see it on the news. We read it in newspapers. There's very public suffering that we see. And in many ways, as a culture, in fact, there's been studies done that say the United States is actually one of the worst nations in the world at dealing with pain and suffering. In many ways, it goes very much against the fabric that knits us together as a nation, the pursuit of happiness. We all want, right? Well, pain and suffering have no place in the pursuit of happiness. But the truth is, is that there are realities that we can't avoid. And some of us have private pain, private suffering that people can't see behind closed doors, in our homes, in our own minds, maybe our spouse or our family, our kids don't see. Well, we're going to find in the next 10 minutes some answers perhaps and an answer that we can't provide on our own and in this story of Job it's 42 chapters and we don't have time to go through all the details but in the book of Job there's three conversations and in these three conversations we actually find the three points of our message today and the three conversations are this first there's a conversation between God and Satan and in that conversation we see that there is actually the reality of suffering but then secondly we see a conversation between Job and his friends And right then and there, we see the wrong response to suffering. And then thirdly, there's a conversation between God and Job. And in that, we find the greatest response, the greatest answer to suffering there is. So first, let's take a look at the reality of suffering. Again, we don't have time to go through all the details, but in the book of Job, in chapter one, it begins with this. There is this conversation and how, I mean, in some ways, it just, it it blows my mind God is having a conversation with Satan, and God says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan responds and says, well, yeah, this Job guy, he serves you, he loves you because he's, he's blessed. I mean, he's got this charmed life. He's very wealthy, he has all this land. Why wouldn't he love you? Why wouldn't he adore you? But let me attack him. Let me take away those things, and then you'll see that he only loves you for the things that you've given him. And right then and there, we actually see something in God's response that is true, God actually allows the suffering to happen even though He didn't create it. And that's so essential because we see all throughout Scripture that God doesn't create evil, He doesn't create death, He doesn't create destruction. In fact, it's the complete antithesis of the world that He designed and desires for us, yet He allows suffering and pain and sorrow and evil, yet He controls it. Because when He responds to Satan, He says, you may take his possessions but do not harm him, don't touch his health. You see, Satan is a lion, but he is a lion on a leash. God is always in control. And so in the reality of this suffering, it's this amazing story, in just the first chapter, all of a sudden, Job finds himself, he's lost all of his property, all of his possession, and he's lost his family. And he responds in a way that I don't know if I'd be able to, honestly. He, he praises God. He says, naked did I come in this world, naked will I leave. The Lord gives and he takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And that Matt Redmond worship song, blessed be your name, came from this section of scripture. And so then it goes into chapter 2. And God is having this conversation, Satan says, hey, consider my servant Job. And Satan responds, he says, well, he only loves you because he has his health. Let me attack him and then he won't love you anymore. And so God, what does he do? Even though he doesn't create evil, he allows it, but then he still controls it. He draws boundaries. He says, you can touch him. You can take his health, but don't take his life. And so Satan comes and attacks him. He has sores from from head to toe. And at the end of that, Job is in this just tremendous description. He's sitting in ashes, taking pots, just scraping his sores. I mean, that's uncomfortable. And in the midst of that, his wife responds, thank you very much. And she says, well, just curse God and die. Not much hope in that moment, right? And it says right after that, in all of these things, Job did not sin. And so for millions upon millions, people have looked at Job as the model for how to suffer well. Or perhaps for some of you in this room, maybe you're like me and maybe you read this story. If you were to go through all the details of his suffering, you might just, like I have, compared my suffering to his and realize, well, okay, that puts things into perspective. I mean, I haven't lost that much. But the truth is, whether we look to Job to model suffering for us, or if we look to Job to just compare our sufferings, there's still a question of, why? Why? Why did these things happen up in Isla Vista? Why did my brother, my younger brother, die? Why did my wife and I for five years struggle with infertility? And I sit down with some of you and you share with me your whys, your pain, your suffering, your sorrows. It's a common question, isn't it? Why? There's books that have been written on it. Why do, what is it? Bad things happen to good people? We ask this question why. We look at Job. We look at his life and even he asks why. I want you to take a look at this video that reminds us that even Job asks those questions of why.
2: Please welcome to Club Emmaus, Job. Let me set the stage, engage, and do not be enraged by my story of woe. I was his favorite, blameless, upright, always did what was right in God's sight, which begs the question, why I was chosen to suffer, boils and sores, no buffer, nothing tougher than losing my sons and daughters, caused by a cosmic bet, and yet I entered naked, I'll leave the same, who am I to complain? But still, I'd love to know why. Friends and relations say, curse God and die. I sigh my reply, we take the good with the bad until the day we die. Happy is the man who God reproves, shapes and improves. We can do naught but wait till he removes. And yet, I couldn't help it. I had to ask the question, why? God thundered his reply. Gird up your loins like a man and stand and answer these questions since you understand. Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth, heaven's worth? When stars and angels sang at creation's birth? Did you enclose the sea with watery walls, Neptune's halls, Instruct the waves where they must fall? Can you raise your voice to the sky? Try, cry, command the lightning where to roar and fly. Can you instruct the eagle how to feed its young? Or rise the sun? Or have winter follow fall when summer's done? Surely you can tame the lion and the bear, Leviathan's lair, smooth every feather, count every hair. And if so, Well then, you can ask me, and tell me who you are! To ask me, why? I have heard of thee, and now I see. Do what you must. I repent in your sight, in ashes and dust. I have declared that which I did not understand. Clearly, you command. You rule over all, and I am not but man. But one who now knows you are greater than my need to know Why?
0: The question of why? is an important question. In fact, Scripture actually invites us to ask that question why. Job asked that question why. King David asked those questions of why. Even Jesus on the cross asked that question of why. You see, it's not wrong for us to ask why. What is wrong, and actually we see in the next thirty chapters of Job, in the conversation between Job and his friends, is we see there the wrong response to suffering And while it's not wrong, it's not a sin, it's not bad, it's actually good for us to ask the question of why. What we don't need, and actually what God doesn't want from us, is to attempt to answer the questions of why on our own strength, on our own knowledge, on our own power, on our own accord. And that's basically what the next 30 chapters of Job is all about. First, his wife says, well, God's to blame, that's why, so curse God and die. And then the friends say, well, actually, here's the reason why, Job, you've made mistakes. You've sinned. It's because of your brokenness, your unrighteousness. Basically, you're reaping what you sowed. And many of us, we don't realize we do this. We fall into that trap all the time. In trying to answer the questions of why for ourselves or others, we're actually going down the same path that... Job's friends let him down, and there's this downward spiral for the next 30 chapters of Job as they get farther and farther away from God wants for them, what God desires for them. You see, it's easy for us when somebody's suffering to say, oh, well, the reason why is this. Or if you just pray more, then God will get you out of it. Or if you just show up at church more, then God will actually fix it. That's not at all what Scripture says. You see very clearly that in this 30 chapters, God is still inviting us to ask the question of why, yet at the same time, He never wants us to attempt to answer that question of why on our own strength, on our own power, on our own knowledge. You see, when we do, and when we try to do that, there's a reason why we do that. Because if we have an answer to the question why, then we can hold on to that thing. And I want you to think about this just rationally for a moment. Let's say when I found out my brother died from an accident, if I had the question why, I, I would just hold on to that. I would put all my hope in that, that, that answer. Or if I knew exactly why for five years my wife and I struggled with infertility, if I knew exactly why, I, I would hold on to that, and I would hold on to that thing. And for many of us, we cry out why. We want to know those things because we actually want to hold on to something. We want to control something. And actually, that gives us hope. That gives us, in many ways, our salvation. And if we get the answer to those questions of why that only God can answer, we'll actually hold on to something else other than God. Because actually, God does respond. He comes and He does answer that question of why, but the way He answers it is not the way that we want Him to. And the way that the Hebrew language, it's so beautiful. The way that God responds to Satan, the word there is the way a superior responds to a slave, or a subordinate, but the way that God responds to Job, it's the same word in English, but the way that he responds to Job is like a two-way dialogue between two friends. So in this whirlwind, God responds to Job, and you heard just a snapshot of it there, and basically he doesn't say why, all he does is reveal himself to Job, and he stretches the limits of human language to describe the power and the might and the glory of who God is. In the midst of all that, he actually answers the question. But it's not in the way that Job wanted. It's not in the way that we want. He answers that question by revealing himself. And you see, we actually have a vantage point in human history that Job didn't. We can look back through time and we can look at all of Scripture from Genesis all the way through Revelation. We can actually see that there is actually the way specifically how God answers that question of why. You see, centuries later, there was another servant of the Lord who was attacked by Satan, who went to the cross, who as Isaiah 53 says was a man of sorrows who bore our iniquities, who in many ways was much like Job in the fact that he suffered, but he was unlike Job in the fact that he truly was innocent. Do you see, if we just settle for Job, we'll have a model for how to suffer. But if we look past Job to Jesus, we actually have someone who meets us in our suffering. If we just settle for Job for somebody who just we can compare our sufferings with, we'll settle for that. We need to go beyond that to Jesus who actually carries our sufferings. Do you know that in Isaiah 53 it says that not only is Jesus a man of sorrows, but that He bears our pain, He carries our pain, He carries our sorrows. He literally carries our suffering. When this clicked in my mind, it began to change suffering for me. Because I used to think that my suffering was mine alone, and yeah, people could understand it, and yeah, people could say, oh, I'm sorry, you know, you'll get through it. And I even thought like God kind of knew about it and understood it, but no, Scripture says that He actually literally enters into my suffering and He carries it for me. Do you believe that? That Jesus is that real, that he's that alive even today, that every single one of our sorrows, for those of us that stood in this room thinking about the sorrows perhaps that we've lost, and even as I've been speaking, those have bubbled to the surface, things that we've kept buried for so long, you realize that Jesus actually carries those things? That you are not alone in your suffering, no matter how public or how private it is. You see, Jesus is truly the innocent sufferer. And He didn't just suffer on a cross, tens of thousands have suffered by crucifixion. He suffered on a cross because He took upon Himself the pain and the punishment, all the suffering of all human history. There's this moment in the (laughs) X-Men, which I saw last night with my family, where Charles Xavier says, the greatest gift we have for humankind is this, is that we can bear their pain and not break. And I imagine those disciples 2,000 years ago, when Jesus went to the cross and He was buried in a tomb, they thought He broke. But infinitely more than Charles Xavier in a fiction film called X-Men, Jesus Christ burst forth from the tomb, and even all of our pain, all of our suffering did not break Him, and He defeated all of it. And it says in Scripture that death is swallowed up in victory. And Jesus has the last word. Not your pain, not your suffering, not your sorrow. Jesus has the last word in your life. And so because of that, Paul says that these present sufferings are nothing compared to the indescribable glory that is yet to be revealed to us. So what do we do in the midst of this time when we have those questions of why? Well, we recognize that Jesus walks for us and walks with us and carries our burden. Would you pray with me? God, as we allow the enormity of this truth to sink into our hearts, may we at the same time hear the truth from your word that not only you walk with us, but you rejoice over us with singing, giving us reason to believe. that God, you love us. May we give you our suffering, our sorrow, our pain, May we allow you to carry those things. And as you lighten our burden, may we see the suffering and pain around us and bear each other's burdens as well as Christ dwells richly through us. And God, may we be still as we hear these words. Amen.